Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Outkick 360 on the Outkick Network. Glad you're with us with Chad Withrow and Paul Koharski. I'm Jonathan Hutton. Big thanks to Lance Lee, Jacob Swanson, and David Reed for making the show happen. Pleased to be joined as we preview and switch gears, talk some Sweet 16 action coming up this weekend. Dane Bradshaw joins us. He is a studio and game analyst for the SEC Network. Dane, it is great to have you on the show. Hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the uh, the new gig and the new show, podcast, uh, whatever you want to call it. But uh, <laughs> hope, hope it's going well. It's you know all under the same umbrella. We, we appreciate it, We man. don't even know what to call it yet, yeah. Dane. So if your, your guess is good as ours. <laughs> call, call it whatever the heck you want. <laughs> How do you, uh, what do you call this tournament? The, the 16 teams that remain combined for the highest seed total ever. What's been the reason to you as to why we saw so many upsets through the first two rounds? I don't know that I can pinpoint it. I, I guess maybe some of it could be the fatigue of the season. Um, you know, you could point to some of it maybe with, without the, the typical crowds and teams just not gelling as much. And, and then, of course, you know, your, your perennial blue bloods that you expect to kind of be in the Sweet 16 every single year. When you remove the Michigan States, the Dukes, the Kentuckys, of course, that opens up a few spots for maybe some more of these Cinderella's. Uh, as opposed to the the normal faces that you see in there, so uh, yeah, it, it's it's been a crazy crazy year. It's been fun, but look, the, the other part is, you know, the, these majors are really good. They're talented. They can shoot the ball. They can defend, and um, you know, the the separation just really isn't that far when you compare those teams against some of the others right now. Dane, when I watch Loyola Chicago, I don't see a Cinderella. And I don't see a team that looks like they, they don't belong. I, I see a team that could be top 15 throughout the year, and they're playing like it right now. When you watch them play, what are your thoughts about how good this team is and now with an opportunity against a, a 12 seed in Oregon State, just how far they could go in this tournament? It's interesting. I had them uh, the year they made their Final Four run at Florida where they upset the Gators, and their big man Cameron Crutwig was just a freshman. And, you know, I'm watching film on them before the game and I'm seeing them. And I'm talking to Porter Mojer at the shoot around. I'm like, you know, that Crutwig kid, uh, he's kind of a point center for you. And I go, am I overthinking that? He goes, no. He was like, I'm telling you, he, he's one of the best passing, passing big man you ever see. It allows us to just run our offense 15 feet and in through him. Uh, now, I did not see them making the run. I didn't think they'd be as good as they were. Uh, but man, that, that guy has been the heart and soul of that program. And you're exactly right. I mean, some of these below the rim guys, which is fundamentally sound, they play together, they're connected, um, that they can, they can beat the more talented teams, uh, if you will. And so much of it too, is, you know, the, the draft boards, yes, sometimes it's off production, but a lot of times it's off potential. How high of a ceiling do you have? Um, you see it at Tennessee, a team we're, we're all very familiar with on this show, Keon Johnson who has a huge ceiling. However, we're not talking about the NBA draft when it's March Madness. We're talking about, you know, four-year proven productive guys that you know you're going to get game in, game out. 
and Loyola Chicago has those guys. And uh, all coaches you talk to, whether it's good or bad, they want to know what am I going to get from each player on a consistent basis. Whether you can't shoot, just don't be a good shooter. So I know I can plan for that. <laughs> if you can play good defense, do it every game so I can plan for that. Porter Mosier has that consistency with his team. Dane, when you see what Mark Few's been able to accomplish at Gonzaga, and this is a discussion we had on our show, but you look at Porter Moser and, and what he's done at Loyola Chicago, if they can fend off Indiana or other jobs that are definitely going to come after him, could Loyola Chicago become the Gonzaga of the Midwest if they're able to keep a coach like that? And are we seeing now in college basketball where maybe it's becoming a little bit more likely for a guy like Moser to stay at a mid-major like Loyola Chicago? Yeah, money talks. And so I, I don't know if they can become the Gonzaga necessarily, um, but it, it is, it, it, you know, the, the programs and the amount that they can pay in the seven figures, it's no longer such a no brainer to move up to that power five. Yeah. You can get more millions, but it also makes that coach consider, Hey, I'm making pretty good money now. Is it worth uh, living a different sort of lifestyle and the pressure as opposed to, doing what I love, which is coaching ball, making a bunch of money, and I don't have to pretend to go for greener pastures. And I think so much of that has just come down to the fact that these mid-major schools um, can throw out pretty sizable, healthy salaries for these coaches. And so um, I don't know that they can become the Gonzaga necessarily. Uh, you know, Mark Few's been doing this a, a long time. It's amazing. I mean, I remember watching Dan Dickow back in the day uh, when they came to, to Memphis or one of the regionals. And so it's just amazing the consistency that he's been able to, to do it with. And I think some of it, yes, that the money's involved. And I'm not saying every coach that goes to a power school has power five school has, has a bigger ego necessarily, but you know, that that's for some coaches. It's not for others. Some coaches just say, look, I don't want to be at every rotary club. I don't want to be, you know, the, uh, the, the greatest thing in the whole community and being asked to do X, Y, Z, constantly. I just like kind of being in my smaller bubble here where I can still compete um, for a final four, which Loyola, Chicago, VCU, all those schools have, have now shown that it doesn't have to just be betting on a once in a lifetime Cinderella run. You can do it multiple times throughout your coaching career if you stay put. Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network with us on Outkick 360. Dane, for, for all of the upsets that we've seen, do you predict a fairly predictable finish here with with Gonzaga up top, Baylor, Michigan, Alabama? Are we about to see the higher seeds take over? No, I, I don't. I, I think the cream rises to the top. I, I agree. I think the, the higher seeds do take over. The ones that have been consistent throughout the course of the year, which for the most part Michigan has been. Baylor was a little bit of a rough start after they had their COVID shutdown and disruption, and Gonzaga obviously has been wire to wire. I mean, the most interesting part to me is all the double digit seeds uh, that you have on the bottom right of the bracket. And then you've got Houston, Syracuse, like one of those teams um, is going to advance to a final four. And, I, but even in that case, I still lean towards uh, the lower seat of Houston with Kelvin Sampson. But uh, yeah, it's funny because it's it, every fan base understands that March Madness is all about upsets and expect the unexpected. But it's inexcusable for it to ever happen to their team. So, you know, even as these brackets go on, it doesn't make any any fan base uh, any uh, more patient, uh, even knowing what's coming. 
So, Dane, let's look at the SEC teams uh, that are left in this tournament. And a couple of second-year head coaches in Nate Oates at Alabama and Eric Musselman at Arkansas doing uh, outstanding jobs. Starting with Alabama, seems like the perfect mix of roster he inherited along with guys he brought in that fits perfectly with his system. When you look at this team, I I think right now they're the second-best team in this tournament outside of Gonzaga. What do you think about the job Nate Oates has done in such a quick time in Tuscaloosa? He's been awesome, man. I've had the benefit of covering them a lot, and and he's he's so – uh, great with his accessibility, you know, shoot arounds, film, giving you breakdowns of what their game plan is. And, and you kind of get to see just how detailed they are. Um, it, you know, he's huge on the analytics and studying what the NBA does. And, um, you know, it, it really doesn't surprise me. I actually had them going further last year. I thought they would have been in the top three or four in the SEC. All that did not click. They lost Kyra Lewis lottery pick. Um, but last year, is the best thing that ever happened to them because they proved they could score 80 plus a game, but they also, the roster also realized that might not be enough to win because they couldn't stop anybody. So the entire off season during the COVID shutdown, all that, it was them having zoom calls about defensive breakdowns, defensive clips. And it helps when the uh, head of their snake, Herb Jones is a defense first type player. He's the player of the year in the sec and defensive player of the year. So when, when everybody embraces that identity, um, is where you see these results. But Nate Oates, I think he has got a great balance of not just saying, hey, we're going to outscore you. We're a run-and-gun style. Uh, they have they have what's called hard hat points, you know, the blue-collar award type stuff within their system. And uh, you're, you're seeing that pay dividends because what makes them so great is the fact that even when they're not shooting the ball well, other teams are hanging in there with them. But that team cannot get any separation. It's usually a two to four point lead, but then it only, you blink and all of a sudden Bama's on a 9-0 run. It could come from any guy on the court. And, and it's really interesting if you talk to him, a lot of it goes back to his Detroit Romulus days as a high school coach. They got beat in the first round of a state tournament or, or regional, whatever it was. And from that day on, he said, look, I'm never going to not have five guys on the court that can pass, dribble, and shoot, which Breaks it down pretty simply. Now, their offense is more complicated than that, but that's the premise of it. Can you pass, dribble, and shoot? If you can't do all five of those things, whether you're the point guard or the center, you can't play. And so that's where they had some of the roster turnover this year where he had some big men. They just played against one of their former teammates from Maryland, Galen Smith. They let a kid go to um, uh, Mississippi State and, you know, within the conference, which is rare. But he said, look, we're not going to be a good fit for you you need to go to a school that has more traditional post. And uh, I'll rant a little bit more because you guys are probably like me, the old school. You're, if you were taught, if you were told to go coach a little league camp right now, you'd probably start off with triple threat. Like everybody knows triple threat fundamental. Nate Oates says, we get that out of their system. You have half a second to pass, shoot, or dribble. And triple threat takes half a second. So we got to get that out of their system. And if you watch Alabama play, Man, they get the ball, they rip it through or take the quick shot. So uh, none of the old school triple threat that I always thought was a a must-have at the fundamental stage of basketball. Speaking of going back to our childhood era, uh, Dane, Arkansas and Eric Musselman and the job he's done, crazy to think that it's been 25 years since they reached a Sweet 16, and now Musselman does it in year two. I I think back at Corliss Williamson and Scotty Thurman and those great Nolan Richardson teams, and it's crazy to think it's been a quarter of a century since they've been to this round, but what a job Musselman has done 
What is his style, and, and how did he get it working so quickly with the Razorbacks program? Well, and in different ways, he inherited a pretty good situation, too. And I, I hate to ever lead off with that point because it, it acts as if you're devaluing something, but it's not. I mean, these coaches came in and did a job that the previous coach either didn't do as successfully or, or wasn't able to capitalize on. In Musselman's situation, he inherited a great recruiting base in that in, in Arkansas's backyard, they had all like a once-in-a-lifetime type recruiting base led by Moses Moody. But they came in and they signed all those guys. So you got to give them credit there. And now you're seeing the production they have on the court. But then he's filled it with a bunch of transfers. However, I'll say this, you know, whether you look at Kentucky or other places across the country, this is a year where we give everybody a pass, rightfully so, for not, you know, for freshmen and newcomers not having an opportunity to gel and get that chemistry in the offseason, all those things. Yet somehow Eric Musselman has found a way to do that, where where this roster is not experienced in terms of playing together, whether that's because they're freshmen or because they're transfers. Yet you look out there on the court and you would think these guys had been playing together since they were in seventh grade. Uh, they play hard. They're accountable. Uh, there was an article earlier, uh, I think today, I, I, I apologize for not being able to uh, quote the source, but I had their game earlier in the season. They got smacked at LSU by like 30 and they had a quick turnaround against Alabama, which obviously hottest team in the SEC. And Eric Musselman said, he goes, look, we probably are going to look really bad against Alabama because we practiced so hard the other day. He said, I had a choice, either prepare our best for Alabama coming up or lay the foundation and standard that what we did at LSU was completely unacceptable. And that's what they decided to do. And they came out flat against Alabama. They looked bad. They took it on the chin. But it was that practice that they had that a lot of the players are pointing back to that said, you know what, that was our wake-up call. That was the most important practice we had all season. And so I really applaud him. You know, he does some interesting things, too. You talk about accountability. He has guys stand up in front of the others in the film room, and he'll literally say, all right, rank the hardest-working players on the team, you know, one through ten. And so, they're, I mean, it's out there, and there, there's nothing behind closed doors, and guys know where they stand with each other. And I think that's part of why you might see um, their chemistry and their bond being at a little bit of accelerated pace than you see other schools right now. We're chatting Sweet 16 headlines and matchups with Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network. Different circumstances, different teams, different experience. But I, I want to get into Villanova and Michigan dealing with losses of players. So Jay Wright without Colin Gillespie, uh, Juwan Howard without Isaiah Livers, find ways to adjust without those guys and advance. Villanova, I think, particularly impressive. Only 12 turnovers in two games against traditionally pretty good defenses while scoring. And Michigan, in a tournament where, where good seeds drop, uh, find a way to, to advance into a game against Florida State. Yeah, I was really impressed. I didn't watch as much, admittedly, on the Villanova game. I was, I was locked into the LSU-Michigan one. Um, and LSU was putting up some points. People might not agree with their style of play. It's a lot of one-on-one -on -one baskets, but they got some guys that can go that will be playing at the next level. And Michigan, I thought Michigan was entering a danger zone there where they were kind of playing LSU style. But, man, even without livers, they showed that they could beat LSU at their own own, own, uh, own style. And it was a high-scoring affair, but 
they had guys all over the court knocking sh- shots down, making plays. And uh, that it, look, you might say, okay, well, LSU, that was an eight seed. Look, LSU had a ton of talent and, and much better than just your typical eight seed. Um, and, you know, the job that Jawan Howard has done has just been remarkable. They've got a, you know, according to Ken Palm, they're, they're top 10 in offense and defense efficiency. Uh, you know, th- that to me is the big separator a little bit, uh, whereas Villanova not as efficient on the defensive side, but they control the game with, with their tempo. They'll slow it down. And, and look, uh, you got to give your hats off to, to um, Jay Wright as well, who just, you know, you get so used to seeing him this far in March. But as you look at like the top 20 paid coaches in the country um, and, and Chad, you're, you're very close to the Tennessee fan base. People are upset that Rick Barnes and Tennessee didn't advance further, but my message has been, Hey, yeah, the guy's making 5 million a year, but go look at the other guys that are making about that much and who weren't even included in March. And who, who's not even advancing? There's only a couple guys in the top 20 that, that are advancing, and that's Mick Cronin at UCLA, uh, who have kind of put on a Cinderella run of their own, and and Jay Wright, who we're talking about now. So um, not Calipari, not Krzyzewski, not, you know, Chris Beard isn't still in this thing, Roy Williams, Izzo, Pearl, Buzz Williams. I mean, these guys are making some big money. And uh, not to say that those guys aren't worth it. Everybody has a down year, especially this year. But, um, you know, I, I think – even more credit goes to Jay Wright for just being able to have that consistency in his program, no matter what gets gets thrown at him. Wick and Suggs, and and maybe there's someone else. Which player still remaining in the field do you enjoy watching the most? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a pass first guy. I love Suggs, just the way he can pass the ball and and how quick Gonzaga gets their shots up. I mean, they get down the court and they get high quality looks just just right away. Um, so uh, offensively, and I think of beauty, I, I love I love watching Suggs play. Um, keeping it in in the SEC, I'm biased, but uh, I still, you know, this isn't you know necessarily one player, but but that this Alabama team, they they truly do have so many different weapons, and that's what that's part of the intrigue to me when I watch those guys play. Is Herb Jones, their star player, was on the bench with foul trouble last game, and that's when they made their big run. They had a kid, Alex Reese, you know, comes off the bench and makes back-to-back threes. You just don't know who's going to provide that 6-0 to 12-0 spark, and their balance is terrific. Um, on the Arkansas side, uh, kid Justin Smith transfer from Indiana, not even on the SEC list or all-SEC team. Everybody felt like maybe he was snubbed. Uh, is he sort of the, the perennial glue guy of the SEC? But you look at the numbers of Justin Smith's putting up there. If they named a, an all-tournament team right now in the NCAA tournament, this dude's a, a first-teamer. Uh, he, he has been absolutely incredible. Um, and so uh, I'm not a huge guy on the transfer market, but it is neat to see guys like that that um, you know ha- have to make a change in their careers and, and be able to have the success. So um, and 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 admittedly, look, I keep it I keep it focused on the SEC some with my expertise because. All my games are SEC. I can tell you a lot more about Vanderbilt's eighth and ninth man on the roster than uh, than watching all the Gonzaga games. So I'm having fun right now, being able to just kind of enjoy as a fan and and watch Michigan Gonzaga. I've gotten to see them a little bit throughout the season, but uh, again, like I said, I think the cream rises to the top. I'd love to see uh, Jawan Howard uh, all these years later get back to the national championship. See if he can't re- redeem the Fab. Fab five, but there's a big part of me rooting for uh, Mark Few and Gonzaga as well.
Well, Dane, let's get to the SEC also in our alma mater in Tennessee. You mentioned it, Vols fans disappointed with this season, especially the way it finished against Oregon State. You look at Rick Barnes, he's had so much success developing guys. When he had that you know, senior-led team, veteran-led team with Grant Williams, uh, Schofield, Jordan Bone and those guys had a lot of success. Now they're getting some one-and-done players, not as much success going that route. Does it feel like the Rick Barnes program is sort of at a crossroads of what they want to be and having an identity moving forward? And how much change do you expect with this program going into next season? I wouldn't call it a crossroads necessarily. I mean, look, they had a roller coaster year, but still managed to get a five seed uh, and, and what was a wild year for many programs. So um, did they end on a high note? No. But I think one of the things that you learned um, was what was the importance of point guard play. Look, uh, you know, I don't James Springer was great. Keon Johnson, great. But even when they were undefeated for non-conference play, I felt like my biggest concern was, yeah, but they got a lot of guys that can play point guard, but they have anybody that can thrive at point guard. And Santiago Vescovi, good, hardworking player, can knock down the open shot, but just a sophomore. I, I didn't, I wasn't ready to say Tennessee had elite point guard play, and I think that was an issue throughout the season is they never got that. Um, and as a result, you see their offense not operating as well and very inconsistent. And then when you match that up with the fact that they had such inconsistent play down low with John Fulkerson and Eve Pond struggling in their senior years offensively, um, it, it was just a mixed bag of results. And and you hoped that the freshmen could be that answer. But instead of them being part of their offense, they became their offense. And that's where you you got into the danger zone, as you saw there. But I think they, they've, you know, with Kennedy Chandler, the – top point guard in America out of Briarcrest and Memphis coming in to play next year. I think he'll solve the point guard problems. And, um, and then I, I don't think Rick Barnes is going to budge on, on his preferred style of play, which is getting that ball at the elbow low block and operating it through there, despite having good guard play. Um, they're going to be needing, you know, Grant Williams 2.0, whether that comes through the transfer market or through the recruiting class. So, um, yeah, I, I still think all, all things considered, uh, they, they had a good year, not a great year. I think it was fr frustrating for the fan bases. At times, you saw the potential where you felt like, hey, this team could make a good run. And then from my standpoint, I thought they checked three key boxes entering the NCAA tournament. How was your conference tournament momentum? They won a game. They performed well against Alabama, got their confidence back. Did they get a good seed? I thought they got a very generous seed. Did they get a good matchup? thought they had a generous matchup. And so when you when you see those things line up and then come out and play the way they did, obviously it's frustrating for the fans and the coaching staff. Dana, part of the March Madness is conference comparison, and we're we're seeing nationally the conversation about the Pac-12, and rightfully so, with the great job they've done in the tournament, the Big Ten, and how quickly their teams diminished, and then the SEC's right there in the middle, not getting much discussion. But it wasn't that long ago that we were having a hard time finding four tournament eligible teams in the conference and then the mandate was laid out that this conference must improve on on the hardwood what have been your thoughts on the development in that area across the conference and the direction that the SEC is headed in basketball yeah and I, I hate to, to draw conclusions on conferences based on the NCAA tournament um, you look they either showed up to play and they they won or they got beat you know, but it doesn't 
truly give you a grade on each conference. And I, I'm not here to say the Big Ten was a complete bust. You know, but bottom line is they just didn't perform well in the NCAA tournament. Uh, does that mean the Big Ten Penn, Big Ten's not one of the top conferences in America? Absolutely not. Um, but it, it can help the narrative. And going back to what you said, that the uh, SEC really benefited from that um, several years ago. I forget the exact year, 16, 17 maybe. Uh, South Carolina's final four run. I started with the SEC Network in 2014, and man, uh, those were yeah, those were like that, that studio session was always walking on eggshells because all you wanted, all you could talk about really was Kentucky, a little bit of Florida, and then everybody else was like apologizing for their rebuild situation or wait till they get these recruits in, wait till this coach builds his brand, all that stuff. And, and a lot of the, even though there was improvements being made in the SEC, the facilities were getting upgraded. The scheduling was getting upgraded. Uh, starting at the top in the conference, they were giving much more attention to uh, what needed to be done. And then the budgets improved to hire some of the big name coaches. But even with all that, you weren't going to get the immediate results, whether it was Frank Martin taking five years to get to the uh, NCAA tournament, making his run. Bruce Pearl took, I think, five years to get his. Rick Barnes took a few years. So all these things took time. Um, but I do think that South Carolina run really got the attention of other people to say, okay, maybe it's not just about Kentucky, Florida anymore. And, and this year I would have loved to see the SEC. I thought they could get as many as four teams to the Sweet 16. Would have been a great thing to hang your hat on. But the other part of that is to say, yeah, but at least the two we got are two that you don't normally expect to see in there. That's Alabama, Arkansas, and uh, not having to just rely on Kentucky um, to carry the brand of the SEC that they had to do for so many years. Great discussion today with Dane Bradshaw of the SEC Network, former Vol, of course, a White Station Spartan as well. Dane, always great to catch up with you, man. We really enjoy your work and appreciate the time here on the show. Thanks Anytime. So Thanks a lot, guys.